All right. Lastly, and this one will probably be a little bit anemic. I didn't have as much time to, to put together the whole thing, but we've got all the verses here. And so we'll look at them one by one. This is the last section here as we look at the eternal city in the eternal state. And this uh, specifically, I think, targets the imagery from Eden. As John is looking at what the internal aspects and function of the city is, he is reminded of Eden. And so he is telling us in terms of what Eden looked like, what this new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem is going to look like. So he says, then he, that refers back to the angel of chapter 21, verses 9 and 10, then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So once again, we have the throne of God and of the Lamb. Um, that is together, actually, we'll look at that in a second. He shows me a river of the water of life, and it is clear as crystal. Back in Genesis, there was a river which came through Eden, and it broke off into four. There was no mention of a sea at that time. In fact, there's no rain, there's no sea. It's by means of these rivers and mist that would come up from the ground that God kept his Garden of Eden um, watered. And so it is uh, not surprising then that in this new heaven and new earth in the new Jerusalem, we see a river once again functioning to water this land because there is no uh, there is no sea. God is restoring this creation to his original intent for the previous creation, but with the difference of there being a redeemed uh, group of humanity. Genesis 2, 7, then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You'll notice this tree of the knowledge of good and evil is absent from the new creation. Again, there is no threat to God's new creation. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. So God created man in his image, and he created him to function uh, as a mirror of him. God, who functions in the universal kingdom as a sovereign ruler, a creator, a cultivator, he, he creates man and gives him the function of reflecting God's own character of labor back to God in this garden. And he does that in a perfect environment with this river running through it to sustain life. There is also a river in the messianic kingdom because the messianic kingdom is the pinnacle of the present creation. God restores this creation so far as uh, it is necessary to uh, fulfill his purposes in it. And that new, uh, that, that messianic kingdom will reflect some of the aspects of Eden, but not in the same way as the new heaven and new earth will. 
Zechariah 14, 8 says, and in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the Eastern Sea and the other half toward the Western Sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. Now in Zechariah 14, we're looking at the Messianic kingdom and one good indicator of that is there are seas present on this earth. There will not be seas in the new heaven and new earth, but there will be a river that flows out of Jerusalem. Revelation 21.1, again, in the new heaven and new earth, the old one has passed away. Now there is no longer any sea. In Ezekiel 47.1 as well, we see a picture of the river that is coming from the temple in Jerusalem. Then he brought me back to the door of the house, and the house in this context of um, Ezekiel 40 through 48 is referring to the house of the Lord, the temple that is on the mountain of Israel. And behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east, and it, uh, for the house faced east, and the water was flowing down from, un, uh, from under, from the right side of the house and from the south of the altar all things that are not present in the new heavens and new earth. And again, this is not without reason, because when the temple was instituted to Moses, Moses was told to reflect the things that he sees in heaven, and the new heaven and new earth, or rather the new Jerusalem that will occupy the new heaven and new earth, already exists. And Moses was able to see it, and he was told to erect the temple to reflect it. So he says, then you shall erect the tabernacle according to its plan, which you have been shown in the mountain. So what we're looking at here in Revelation 21 to 22, that new Jerusalem, that is what the temple was, was uh, made to reflect. And so in the messianic kingdom, when the temple reaches its full purpose uh, with Christ sitting in there as the glory of God present among the nation and the people whom he has redeemed, it is natural that it is going to reflect the new Jerusalem as closely as this earth will see. But it is not identical with it. It is still a shadow of what is to come in the new creation. So finally, here then we have it that it is coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Previously, when we in what we see in Ezekiel is that it comes from beneath the temple. Here it is coming directly from the throne of God and of the Lamb. This is something very interesting. Uh, it is coming from the throne, and this throne is singular. There is only one throne, and it is of God. Tuthiu, and of the Lamb, Kaitu Arniu. Now, the singular throne is characterized as belonging to both God and to the Lamb. Now, some see in here an identification of God with the Lamb, that because Jesus is the Lamb and Jesus is God, that this is really just speaking of Jesus' throne over this creation, over this earth. And so it is identifying the deity of Christ. But that does not hold up in the Greek. We have two entities that are not the same here. Because how we would indicate in the Greek that this is the same entity is you see these kind of gold 
actually, let me see here. These gold uh, words, two, these are articles. And you are able to join two nouns together with a chi, this and, so long as they are both governed by only one article. But there's two articles. In Greek, that makes it impossible for these to refer to the same entity. Yes, Jesus is God, but this is referring to God the Father. The Lamb, as we've seen elsewhere in Revelation, refers to God the Son who sacrificed himself for mankind by becoming man and dying for them. This is distinguishable from God the Father. But we have one throne. God is sitting on the throne. Jesus is sitting on the throne. Previously, we've seen Jesus sitting at the right hand of God on God's throne. And we have seen Jesus sitting alone on his throne, the throne of David. Zechariah 14.9 says, The Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. So what we have is the completion of God's purpose in the previous creation. We want to distinguish then what is that. We've looked at this before with less words and more pictures, but I think the words are important here. We have God's universal kingdom, which is eternal and transcendent and sovereign over this creation. It is distinct from his created orders. He is uncreated and his kingdom is uncreated with creation within it. God created this present creation in order to reflect his own universal rule. And he did this. It's, we call it the mediatorial kingdom because there is a mediator between God and creation. And that role is filled by humanity. This is a temporal kingdom. It is a dominion over creation. Now, all of the instances which we see that God has prepared Christ from before the foundations of the earth for glory in this earth point to the fact that God's purpose for creating this mediatorial kingdom and placing humanity over it was that he would elevate his own son over it. So we see the program of incarnation present from the very beginning as well, which is probably why Christ being the perfect image of God, as Hebrews 1.3 tells us, God created humanity in his own image, not only so that we would have fellowship with him and be able to reflect him in this creation, but so that he himself would be able to enter into this creation. The mediatorial kingdom has its purpose of Christ becoming man and ruling over the kingdom of this earth, which is fulfilled in the messianic kingdom. The problem was, of course, with the fall of man, regeneration became necessary. And so the program of redemption began within this kingdom. And Jesus fulfills that purpose at the cross, and then he fulfills God's creation purpose in the messianic kingdom. So what we have on the left-hand column of this chart is that theocratic rule, which is God's positive will that he plans or he created this kingdom to be ruled by. So that's the form of government that is supposed to rule in this kingdom. On the right side, we've got the cosmic rule, which is under God's permissive will, still under his sovereignty. But that is what is opposed to God's will, and that's Satan's will. And that's what Jesus rescues this creation from. 
once it is rescued, Jesus will sit on the throne of this mediatorial kingdom. But once God's purposes are finished in this creation, once Jesus has crushed all other authority, once he has ruled over this creation perfectly, we think of uh, Isaiah 9, we think of Psalm 2, um, all of God's purposes in Christ for this creation, this creation will disappear. This creation will be destroyed. And so the question arises, isn't that Christ's throne? Isn't that Jesus' throne where he rules over? Well, God has something greater for him because while this creation remains, it is part of the mediatorial kingdom under God's rule, which is ruled by mankind. And we see from Genesis 3 that mankind remains the ruler of it, whether he is submissive to God or submissive to Satan. But God does something incredible in the new heavens and the new earth. His throne, his universal throne, merges with the throne of the mediatorial kingdom. And he does this by creating a new kingdom, which Christ is over and which he is also over together. And that is why in the new heavens and new earth, we have a singular throne with both God the Father and the Lamb sitting on it. It belongs to both of them. The God-man, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, and that is, I think, again, why the Lamb is specified here, because he became the Lamb by becoming flesh, by becoming mankind. There is a man who will sit over the throne of this universe together with God, because he is perfectly God, and he is perfectly man. This is God's ultimate glory, and it is not the kingdom promised to Israel. But once the kingdom promised to Israel is fulfilled, God's purposes in Christ are elevated yet further, and he becomes, together with God, the ruler over the entire universe. In fact, greater even than that, transcendent over it, God merges his throne together with the ruler of this earth. All right, moving into verse 2 of chapter 22, you see that I've got a prepositional phrase that is attached here uh, to the beginning of verse 2. The Whoever put in all the verses uh, or split up all the verses, split verse 1 and verse 2 right here. Um, and many people have debated whether or not this prepositional phrase in the middle of the, its street needs to go with what comes in verse 22 or whether it should go back here with verse 1. So he says, a river of the water of life clears crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of the street. So is the throne of God in the middle of the street or is the tree of life in the middle of the street with the river of life on either side? Uh, we looked at this word tes plateas back in, well, it was the last section that we did um, at the, in the middle of chapter 21. And it's uniquely here singular for street. So when we've got the street in uh, the New Jerusalem, it's not plural streets like we would expect. It is singular. And it's probably better understood as plaza, uh, because that is one of the possible meanings here. 
And being that it's singular, it's probably not talking about the thoroughfares which traverse in the city, uh, but rather a central plaza uh, that is within the New Jerusalem. Christ's throne will be together with God in the center of the city and that's plaza. The river is going to flow out of the throne and so it will cross over the plaza. But it is the tree of life, which we're told is in the middle of the plaza. And so it is right there in the presence of God in front of his throne or behind his throne, not sure which. But uh, this prepositional phrase more naturally goes with what is here to come in verse 22. So I would change it to look more like this. And some translations do this. I'm consistently using the NASB. So I'm just showing you why I would go with a different translation for this verse. But if you look at how this is structured, we've got two prepositional phrases here. Oops, can't quite get there. Um, in the middle of the street and on either side of the river. Those both modify was the tree of life, giving a, a double um, predicate there in the middle on either side for its location. But then here we've got another um, set of two things modifying the tree of life, which is on either side of the river and in the middle of the plaza. And these are two uh, participles bearing and yielding uh, to give us more description of this tree of life. So the reason these two prepositional phrases are before is to distinguish them from these uh, clauses here, bearing 12 kinds of fruit and yielding its fruit every month. And so this is right in the middle, uh, the tree of life. All right, hopefully that makes sense. Let's move on to talk about this tree of life, because just like street or plaza, tree is singular, and yet usually it is depicted plural, because how do you get it on either side of the river without having at least two of them? And so then artists extrapolate on this and say, well, if there's has to be at least two of them to make any sense, why not make a forest of them? Some arguments have been made, um, not from the necessity of the syntax and the grammar here, um, but basically to try to understand this issue of how it can be on either side of the river. They say, well, it is possible in the Greek for a singular, especially a singular of material like uh, trees or fish or seeds um, to be a singular uh, collective. So that yes, it might be the singular tree, uh, but it really means just tree in its material. And so it could mean plural. Um, a defense of this, uh, it again is this whole passage is structured to reflect um, Eden. And so there was a singular tree there in Eden that was the tree of life. And so John is probably trying to evoke our thoughts of Eden by speaking of these trees in the singular. Uh, and so you end up with a picture like this. You've got this, the river running through the streets because this artist uh, takes those to be a street rather than a plaza. Uh, and then you've got trees on either side and you see it extending down the whole street. So you don't just have two trees anymore. While this is possible in the Greek syntax, I don't think it is the best solution. I think the best solution looks a little more like this. We have a central plaza in the middle of the city 
and we have a tree that is large enough to span the river. Its roots touch down on either side. We've got the river of life, the water of life, coming from the throne, going underneath the tree of life that bears 12 kinds of fruit, um, yielding its fruit each month. I do think this is a singular tree. I don't think this is a tree that is going to be um, existing plurally. And why I say that is because a lot of the, uh, why I say that is because the salvation that we're receiving is singular. The life that we're receiving in Christ is singular, not plural. Just like we only have one Savior, just like we only have one God who offers life, he's got one river that's offering this physical life, he's got one tree that's offering this physical life. All of this is pointing towards the singularity of God, the singular singularity of our source of life in him. Yes, he has multiple uh, different uh, features of creation that are representing this, the tree, the water, but it's all pointing back to the same source and it's all in his presence. Um, I think it goes beyond the text to make these plural trees. Uh, these trees as well, when we look back to Genesis, we saw the creation of this or the uh, presence of this tree in Genesis 2. Um, but the significance of this tree really comes out after the fall. And we see this statement by God. And this is an interesting statement. He says, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he is taken. Uh, you see this long M dash in here. I think that is a really good translation where the thought is so unthinkable that God's train of thought trails off. And then the narrator brings it back. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden. It's um, like you can sense the astonishment here, but also the, the concern. If they are to eat of this, they will live forever. And we see the same tree returning in the eternal state. It is safe here in the presence of God with sin no longer part of the experience of mankind to allow mankind to live forever because there is no need for death. There is no need to restore through death and resurrection. The restoration has occurred. And so living forever no longer poses any threat to confirming humanity and permanent eternal separation from God. Now it is eternal presence with God, and this tree helps to facilitate that. Genesis 3.24, so he drove the man out at the east of the Garden of Eden. He stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, I also think this is a fascinating addition here, because we see that even in the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation, this perfect environment, man has been regenerated, man has been recreated in the image of God, in the image of his son, Jesus Christ. 
but still we remain dependent on him. We do not become little gods. We do not become independent from God. Even in our resurrection bodies, even in our glorified bodies, we require his presence and we require his sustenance. The absence of opposing will, which is the presence of sin, means that we will always choose his will willingly. We are not going to uh, oppose it. This absence of sin being in our regenerated bodies um, protects us from death, but that doesn't mean that these bodies are incapable of dying. It means they won't die because sin won't be present. But we are sustained by God's sustenance. We still depend on him for life. The difference is we will depend on him for life rather than trying to do it on our own. And so this is the perfect state in which we are able to take of this tree of life without a threat to barriers being solidified between us and God. There will be no barriers between us. One more note on this tree before we begin to leave it. Um, it bears 12 kinds of fruit and it yields its fruit every month. Again, people have tried to uh, take this these trees as plural because these 12 different kinds of fruit, well, trees don't bear 12 kinds of fruit, they bear one type. So people are saying, well, there's 12 kinds of trees and each one has its own kind of fruit, but they're all life trees. Does not hold up in the text also unnecess an unnecessary solution. Because in Genesis 1, 11, and again in 1, uh, 29 and on, we see that trees were created by God and they were specifically given a single kind of seed that would bear the same um, production. The same seed would produce the same fruit and it would be one seed, one fruit that would come from it. That is how God structured this creation. God is not renovating this creation. God is creating something brand new. So it is not a problem that he would create a tree which bears 12 kinds of fruit. He is allowed to do that. He is powerful enough to do that. And we're told that that's what he does. This is a tree that bears 12 kinds of fruit. And notice as well, it's also going to yield its fruit every month. And we might miss this, but there's no moon in the new heavens and new earth, or there is probably no moon. The moon was instituted in this creation in order to regulate months. But the months came first, and God instituted the moon in order to be a sign to us that a month had passed. Something about God's nature has the ability to regulate time, and he has calibrated the cosmos to reflect that to us. We talked about this a little while ago. We did a little segment on theories of time in Genesis. Time does not depend on the clocks that gauge it. Time goes on whether or not there's a clock to meter its time or not. Time, these months, continues whether or not there's a moon to tell us that a month has passed. But again, we not only don't need a moon to give us light at night because there's no need for an external light and there's no night that needs light. Also, we don't need it to tell time. 
God has put something in the center of his city here, in the center of the New Jerusalem, which tells time. This tree yields fruit every month. We're able to distinguish one month from the next by the transfer of yield from this tree. Um, so time still exists. The passing of time is still going to be regulated. And it looks like we get different indicators, different signs of the passing of time, one being this tree. I would assume it would be very regular, just like the uh, orbit of the moon. All right. Moving on to the second half of verse two here. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Again, we want to interpret nations here as uh, yes, the political entities, but the people groups within them. Uh, in this context, we are looking at individuals. It's not healing a political entity, but it's these people groups have been divided up here as political national entities, probably retaining the same national divisions, at least ethnically, perhaps, as are present in this creation. But these leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Healing, I think, is a really bad translation here. Uh, there is not going to be sickness or disease that needs recovery, but that's also not the primary meaning of this Greek word, therapia. It literally just means therapy. Um, sometimes it does mean a cure, um, but it goes back to the term service. So we could translate this probably a little more neutrally and say the leaves of the tree were for the service of the nations. In some way, they serve these nations, just like the fruit of this tree serves the people who eat it, just like the water of the river of life will serve the people. Um, these, even the leaves of this tree offer a service to these nations. Um, and it is not curing disease, but therapy uh, of some sort. John doesn't give us much more detail, but these leaves of these trees will serve uh, the people of God. Uh, in verse 3, we see uh, what should be clear by now as we go through this, but he states it very clearly, uh, just so we don't miss it. And I believe he's stated this already once in the previous chapter. There will be, or there will no longer be any curse. Now, the messianic kingdom, the curse that Adam and Eve incurred in the garden that was on the land was partially rolled back. For those who uh, were believers in the kingdom, there was no curse that affected them. Uh, but we can see from, uh, did I put anything here? Actually, let me go back a bit. We can see that there will be the presence of curse-like effects. Uh, for example, here in Isaiah 65, 20, no longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days, for the youth will die at the age of 100 and the, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. In Isaiah 65, 20, looking at the messianic kingdom, not the new heavens and new earth, there will be death, but it's for those who will be thought accursed because though the curse uh, that Adam incurred um, is rolled back, there is still the presence of some kind of curse 
or the possibility of some kind of cursing. But in the new heavens and new earth, there not only won't be the curse of Adam and Eve, there won't be any curse, not the existence of anything. God is going to, uh, I think this is in uh, uh, Zechariah 14, 12, verse maybe 13, 12, 13, or 14, uh, where God is going to curse the nation that rebels against Jerusalem. Uh, we see a bunch of nations and people groups rebel against Jerusalem, led by Satan at the end of the thousand year, years. That is a curse by which he will uh, destroy them. There is not the presence of any curse in this new heaven and new earth. So again, as John is reflecting the creation of Eden, he is showing us its different destiny than Eden had. In Eden, man incurred a curse. Here in this new heavens and new earth, new Jerusalem, which reflects the original Eden, there will no longer be any curse at all of any sort. Uh, also, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. This is reiterating what we learned in the previous verses, but he's emphasizing it here because verses 1 and 2 form a little unit and verses 3, 4, and 5 form a little unit uh, because here he wants to add something about these bond servants who are going to serve him. Just like Adam was put into the Garden of Eden to tend it and to keep it, so we will be in this eternal state together with God in his presence um, with the same things but better as we're ministering to Adam and Eve in the garden. And we will serve him. We are not going to be there in, uh, I guess it's it's not going to be a vacation, but this service is not going to be laborious. It's not going to be burdensome. It is going to be a joy to serve him in this way. Uh, because we were designed to do this. We were not designed to kick back by the side of the pool for all of eternity and basically wither into nothing. We are designed to be active. And of course, activity comes with rest as well. God designed rest for this creation, and there will be rest in the new creation. Though his rest was not from exhaustion, but to enjoy the works of his hands, and ours will be the same. We won't have to rest in order to recoup, but we will still, just like he has rest, we will have rest as well, um, because there's nothing bad about rest, but there's also nothing bad about service and labor. Um, and that's the side of the point that needs to be stressed is we will continue to work in the kingdom or in the new heavens and new earth. And that is a good thing uh, because we're designed to reflect God and God is a God who works. Uh, so his bond servants, which is us, will serve him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Now that's incredible because ever since Adam and Eve fell, it has not been possible to see God face to face because we couldn't survive being in his presence and seeing him face to face. Things are so different in this new heaven and new earth us being united with Christ, regenerated, redeemed, uh, confirmed in perfect holiness in him, we are able to see him face to face. This is the complete absence of sin and the permanence of, uh, of his nature in us. 
1 John 3, 2 looks forward to this. And in verse 3, he's going to tell us that as we keep our eyes on this future reality, we purify ourselves or we sanctify ourselves in this life as well. So we want to know what this means, that we are moving towards this period in, in history, which is yet future, where we will be conformed to his image and be able to see him face to face. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God. That's the basis for this promise. And it has not appeared yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, another basis, because we will see him just as he is. That has not been possible before. Exodus 33, 20, again, looking back at that time when the tabernacle was being instituted and why Moses couldn't be in the presence of God, says, but he said, you cannot see my face. Moses is asked to see God. God says, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. For the same reason Moses couldn't be in the tabernacle when the glory of God came in, Moses cannot look at God's face. He cannot see him in his perfect glory because the sin within him would flee from it. And essentially he would die because he is made up of sin. Exodus 33, 21 then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you into the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. God has come as close as he can to mankind in our current state. But the closeness that is impossible here will be made our eternal state through Jesus Christ. Not only will we see his face, but his name will be on their foreheads. Now this, uh, there's a few different interpretations of what this means. Uh, one has to do with being conformed to his image. Uh, rather than literally his physical name written on our foreheads, some say, well, our faces will be like his because we will be conformed to his image. Um, others connect this with the believer's crowns uh, that we see the uh, 24 elders wearing in, in heaven. Uh, this is possible, but there's no reason here why he wouldn't be able to just say crowns then. Um, it seems like it is going to be more attached to us. Um, again, when it's not clearly a symbol, it's best to take it literally. Uh, but it's not without precedent either to have his name printed on the forehead. In fact, this was instituted for the priests who worked in the temple, especially the high priest who would wear the breastplate with the 12 stones, the same or many of the same stones we saw uh, on the New Jerusalem, but when he came into the presence of God, he would have God's name written on his forehead physically, and so there's no reason to think that we would be any different when we enter into his presence. Exodus 28, 38, it shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall take away the iniquity of the holy things which the sons of Israel consecrate in regard, uh, with regard to all their holy gifts, and it shall always be on his forehead 
that they may be accepted before the Lord. And this makes sense. Not only are we kings of the earth in this new heaven and new earth, but we re remain priests to our God. We don't change in that new heaven and new earth. The new heaven and new earth changes, but our roles in it will continue. Revelation 5, 9, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Just like Jesus becomes a king priest through the order of Melchizedek, so we become kings and priests through the order of Jesus Christ. And we will reign upon the earth. And that reign, just like Jesus, doesn't cease to reign in the new heavens and new earth. Neither do we cease to reign in the new heaven and new earth. They will continue to be kings. But also, we don't cease to be priests. Priests are mediators between God and creation, or between God and another party. And Jesus became our priest by becoming one of us to represent us to God, and he is God and represents God to us. And we will stand as mediators as well, priests to our God uh, between creation and God. Uh, in verse... Ooh, is this three? No, this is this is supposed to say Revelation 22, 5. It says, there will no longer be any night. Again, confirming something that he said parenthetically earlier. He now gives us the clear statement and he develops a bit, it a bit. It says, they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor of the light of the sun. So again, just as he clarified, there's no need for sun and moon. Now we see there's no need for the sun, even in the eternal daytime. There's also no need of a lamp inside, and the reason for that is clear, because even the gold is translucent. Uh, there is nothing that will block the presence and the light of God's glory. So we don't even need a lamp inside. God's glory will shine through. We don't need the light of the sun outside, because his glory will fill the new creation. The glory of God will illumine them. That's the reason. And then confirming it once again, and they, looking back again, and this is all looking back to those, um, let me get to it, yes, uh, his bondservants will serve him, remember we are his bondservants, we will see him face to face, his name will be on our foreheads, and there will no longer be any night, and they will have no need of a of a light of a lamp or the light of the sun they is his bond servants because the lord will illumine his bond servants and his bond servants us will reign forever and ever this is the new duration of reign because we saw already back in revelation 20 when he's confirming that the those who are martyred during the tribulation period when he confirms that they will also reign together with the redeemed of god he says the duration there will be for 1,000 years. Well, that reign does come to an end with the previous creation, but we continue to reign under a different order, but in the same manner in the new heavens and new earth. And this new heavens and new earth is without end. And so rather than ruling for an age, we rule for ages and ages forever and ever without ceasing. 
in closing here, I'll just have a quote, a quote from Clarence Larkin. He says, what those ages of ages shall reveal of the plan and purpose of God, we do not know. But if we are his and we shall, uh, if we are his, we shall live to know and possibly take part in their development. What we do know is that we are but in the beginning of things, and as concerning the ages, eternity is still young. And so we have a lot to look forward to, not only in the rest of this present earth, but when this earth ceases to be, we do not cease to be, and our presence with God only becomes greater and greater in its magnitude. And so eternity is something magnificent to look forward to.